Hey, good morning. How is everyone? Come on, Tim. All right, thank you. Um, it's great to be here this morning. Great summer day. We've got a little break in the weather. Um, you know, some of you might be uh, wondering, you know, a lot of times you know, Ed's a very busy man. He's always traveling, and so occasionally you have to have a substitute come in and do the preaching. But you may have noticed the last couple of weeks, Ed's been here, but he's not preaching. You know, last week it was, it, was, it was Brandon. He did a great job. This week it's me. And you know, the, the, the reason for that is Ed is, is kind of taking a step back from his preaching because he's pursuing his lifelong dream of roving church cameraman as, as the rest of the service goes on. Just, just kidding, of course. Uh, Ed, Ed, Ed's been very busy, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a, an honor to be able to, uh, to, to try uh, to, to stand in for him. We're going, to be in, we're going to be in Acts chapter 12 today. We're going to look at the entire chapter, so if you want to start turning there. This is, uh, this is a really uh, great chapter in the book of Acts. It's full of action, full of interesting characters. We, we, we see some things happen that we haven't seen before. We're going to see for the first time uh, the breakout of, of the persecution of Rome. And you might say, well, hold on, we've been reading about persecution all along, but... That persecution was coming directly from, from the Jews and the Jewish leadership. You're, you're going to see the Roman government officially get involved here. And, and of course, if you know your history, even your secular history, you know that the, the Roman persecution is something that would plague the church off and on for hundreds of years after this. We're going, to, we're going to see the narrative shift after chapter 12 away from the Jerusalem church and away from Peter for that matter. Um, the, the, the Jerusalem church and Peter will be the central figures in, in this last chapter, in chapter 12. But afterwards, we're not going to hear much about them. The, the, the narrative is going to shift outward to Asia, Europe, Rome, Greece, and, and of course, Paul. And we're also going to see for the first time uh, in the book of Acts the, the martyrdom of an apostle of Jesus, uh, James in particular, uh, the, uh, the brother of John. So why don't we just jump right in? I'm going to turn over to Acts myself, and then we'll start reading. We'll be in chapter 12. We'll start in verse 1. <clears throat> and the Bible says, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him, and Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. They went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. 
Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning... There was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they may be executed. Or they be executed. Excuse me. <clears throat> then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace. Because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> but the word of God continued to spread and to flourish. Amen. Um, give a little context. Uh, as Ed mentioned on Tuesday, this, this, this is taking place perhaps 10 or so years after the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus. So somewhere in the early 40s A.D. And, and we see the rise of this King Herod. It's uh, Herod Agrippa is who we're talking about. He would have been the grandson of Herod the Great. Interesting story on Herod Agrippa. He was a complex individual. His own father, uh, who was the son of Herod the Great... Uh, was killed by Herod the Great. So essentially, imagine you're Herod Agrippa. Your dad is killed by your grandfather. Um, Herod the Great was a paranoid, uh, unbalanced individual, and he thought that his sons were going to try to steal his power, so he had them killed. So, so right away, you know, that's therapy session number one, right, if you're, uh, if you're Herod Agrippa, right? Tell me about your family, right? So he, he ended up being sent off to Rome, to, uh, to be educated by the, with the Roman aristocracy. He met some interesting people there that would be beneficial for him later in life. He met Caligula and Claudius, both of whom would become emperors. Uh, he, he, he grew into manhood and he became a, a man of excess. Uh, he, he, he got into trouble. He got into a lot of debt. He, he, was, he was imprisoned at least once. Um, but, at, but at some point in prison, he was released by Caligula, who was by now emperor, and put uh, over the, the northern territories of what we tend to think of as Israel, so up around Galilee. And then later, when Claudius became emperor, he expanded his territory down into Judah. So by this time, Herod is essentially the king, on behalf of Rome, of everything that we tend to think of as you know, the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. And, and, and given his uh, interesting life, up to this point, it's not hard to understand how he might become somewhat of a people pleaser, right? He, 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 he breaks out this persecution against the Jews. It doesn't say specifically what instigated it by him, but 
he, when he saw that killing James was pleasing to the Jews, he thought, hmm, well, this is good. I'll do some more, right? If a little is good, a lot should be better. So he captures Peter. Of course, by the time he gets around to capturing Peter, it's in the, fest, in the midst of the festival of unleavened bread. And, and killing Peter during that time would not have been pleasing to the Jews. So he, he, he puts him away in prison. And the entire time in verse 5, it says the church is praying earnestly for him. This is a fervent prayer. The, the, the Greek language there is it's like stretching yourself out to pray. So they're laying down these prayers for Peter. So Peter's in prison. He's guarded by these four sets of four guards. There would have been four guards working in shifts to make sure that they're always uh, fresh. Um, and and, he, and he's, he's asleep. An angel shows up. Light fills the room. The angel strikes him to wake him up and leads him out. And I find it interesting at this point in the Bible that, you know, a lot of times, do you, do you ever wonder why the Bible isn't more detailed? In its accounts, you know, why don't we know why? Why don't we know what Jesus looked like? You know, why doesn't the Bible describe that sort of thing? Why doesn't the Bible tell us more about these events? But, but interestingly, at this section of the Book of Acts, Luke is very detailed. He says that that a Peter struck there, excuse me, that an angel struck him on his side and said, "Quick, get up!" And, and the chains fell off. And he, and he gives him these. He's very. Put on your clothes. Puts on his clothes. Wrap your cloak around you. Put on your sandals. Okay, let's go. They walk out. They walk past this sentry. They walk past another sentry. The, the gate opens. He walks to the end of the street. It's very detailed, uncharacteristic of the Bible. And I think that what Luke is trying to get across to us here is that this is not an instance of God helping those who help themselves. Right? This is not a Holy Spirit-empowered prison escape. You know, Peter wasn't given uh, the inspiration to craft his own escape. He was led by the hand, uh, seemingly not even knowing what's going on, yeah. out of this prison. God did all of this work on his own. Peter realizes in the middle of the street, uh, finally, that he's escaped. He figures, I better get off the street um, because I'm a fugitive. He goes to the house of Mary, uh, the mother of John Mark, who, of course, would become a missionary in his own right, a writer of the gospel, a confidant of Peter. So we get to see him emerge in this chapter. Peter knocks at the door, and the servant girl comes. And she's so excited when she recognizes his voice, she doesn't even bother opening the door. She just runs back in, right? She tells everybody Peter's at the door, and they, they, they all but refuse to believe that it could be Peter. They were there praying. She comes. Peter's here. They don't believe it. They tell her she's crazy. She persists. They say, you know what? Okay, maybe you're not crazy, but it ain't Peter. It's his angel, Right? And it's, it's, maybe we'll take just a minute here and kind of delve into that a little bit. You know, what, does that, what does that mean, it's his angel? Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's useful to understand that the Jews of this time, and Jewish Christians for that matter, which is who we're reading about, had a very solid belief that everyone had their own personal angel. Uh, you can read about it in early church history. You can read about it in extra-biblical uh, Jewish writings like the book of Tobit. It, it, and it, and it's, it's in the Bible, if you think about it. Um, there's some vague references to it. Psalm 91, he will give his angels, he will command his angels concerning you to lift you up in their hands so that you don't bust your foot on the stone. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 says that angels are, are uh, ministering spirits sent to render service to those who are inheriting salvation. But the most direct reference that I could find to this in the Bible came from Jesus. And in chapter 18 of Matthew, verse 10, he's talking to people and he says, See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels 
see the face of my Father in heaven. It's interesting. You know, we don't talk about it a lot. And I'm not suggesting that we start talking about it a lot. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to go do a deep study on, you know, what the name of your guardian angel is. And you get one of those weird bumper sticker, stickers on the back of your car. That's probably not going to edify you spiritually. But what will edify you spiritually is to understand who you're reading about. Right? When, when we read the Bible, I think it's very important to put ourselves in the, in, in the mindset of the, of the original uh, readers. Right? And, and, and that's kind of, a, it's kind of like an understood and accepted rule of Bible study is that the Bible can't mean anything to you that it didn't mean to the original audience. You know, I, get, I get a little worried sometimes. I see a lot of people both in and outside of our fellowship. And, and I, I got nothing against devotional books. Right, but that, you know, I know you, you'll get a book, right? And, and every day you read like one Bible verse, or maybe even half a Bible verse, <laughs> and then you read two pages of, of commentary from somebody that's basically telling you you're awesome, right? Uh, because of this Bible verse, right? And uh, and everything's going to be great for you because of this half a Bible verse that I just took out of context. Now I know a lot of really great disciples and very faithful spiritual people that make that part of their worship, and I am not telling you to stop please that's not that's not my purpose here but but just don't that's not bible study all right don't 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 think that that is a substitute for actually digging into the bible and finding out what god's trying to tell you and we got to understand stuff when we read stuff that doesn't immediately make sense to it we owe it to ourselves to dig into that a little bit and see what we find and it's a lifelong study but embrace it you know sometimes when i talk to my wife deanna you know and sometimes the conversation will get a little longer than my comfort zone, which is about six and a half minutes. And, uh, you know, she'll say something sometimes, and maybe I don't fully understand the statement that she just made. And, and the temptation is to go and, and try to play it off like I understand what she just said, right? And I'm thinking in the back of my head, hey, maybe this moment will pass. Maybe it's not that important. After all, we can get through to the end of this conversation. Everything's going to be fine. But you know, it never works out that way. It's always important. It was always something that I should have looked into. It was always something I should have said, hey, could you explain that a little bit? I don't quite understand that. You know, if I want to have a great marriage and a great relationship with my wife, I've got to understand her. I've got I to gotta seek to, to, to see what's going on inside that head of hers. And, and the same applies to my relationship with God. You know, the Bible is his word to me. And, and I, I can't take it as a, at a surface level, right? I got to dig into it. That's a little bit of a tangent uh, there. Anyway, um, let me see if I can figure out where I, where I was. But um, anyway, uh, Peter has to settle them all down. Apparently, they're getting a little raucous. They're excited to see him. He settles them down. He says, go tell James and the other brothers and sisters about what has happened here. And of course, this is a different James. This isn't the James that was killed. This isn't the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. This is, we believe, James, the brother of Jesus, who we will see rise up into a, like a, a very prominent leadership role in the church of Jerusalem. And the Bible doesn't really tell us why that happened. And perhaps there was a, perhaps the apostles left to evangelize outside of Jerusalem, or, or perhaps they were laying low because of persecution and there was a void of leadership and he stepped up into it. But the interesting thing to note about James is that he didn't start off on this track. If you read John 7, chapter 5, the Bible specifically says about Jesus that his brothers did not believe in him. Right. And that would have included James. James is a man of repentance, right? You talk about turning, 
right? This, this guy changed completely and, and went on to uh, become a leader, become an elder, for sure, uh, and, and become a, 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 an author of, of one of the, the, the you know, one of the most prominent books in the Bible, one of my favorite, anyway. Um, but then the, then the narrative shifts over to uh, Herod. You know, Herod has the guards killed, which was a common Roman practice. If you were guarding a prisoner and he escaped, you had to take on the consequence that was coming to him, right? So if you were in any doubt that Herod intended to kill Peter, this would squash that doubt. That was Peter's fate. And then he, he leaves Judea and goes to Caesarea, the Bible says. And maybe he was trying to get, get out of town because the Jews were not so happy with him having let Peter escape. But he, he ends up in these negotiations with Tyre and Sidon. Um, these, are, these are countries that would have been uh, descendants of the Phoenicians. They had a, a vibrant uh, trade on the seas. Uh, they were seafaring people. But they depended upon the inland, which would have been controlled by Herod for their food supply. So something had broken down. They might have been in a trade war, God forbid. Um, but but it, gets, it, it gets worked out, perhaps. And, and Herod is giving an address, and it says that he's in his royal robe, robes, and as he speaks, uh, the people are, are shouting, this, this, is not a, this is not a man, this is a God that speaks. And, and Luke tells us that because he didn't give glory to God, he was struck by an angel, eaten by worms, and died. We... Believe it or not, of all the stories in the Bible, this one is actually corroborated somewhat by, by external sources. Jo- Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells the same story. He says that Herod was giving this address, and, and he points out that his royal robes were made of silver, and they glistened in the sun, which may have given a little bit of uh, added incentive to think that he was not just a, a mortal, right? And, and they, they said that in Josephus' account, they, they proclaimed, this man is more than mortal that's speaking to us. And Josephus also points out very specifically that Herod did not either affirm or deny their claims. You know, Josephus points to the same basic sort of guilt, right? And it says that he was immediately struck with uh, stomach pains and died some days later. But, you know, it just brings me to the, to the sermon. The title of my sermon is, is The Prayers of the Faithful Doubters. The prayers of the faithful doubters. You know, it's tempting to look at this story, which is so packed full of cool stuff. There's so much action. There's, there's, there's persecution. There's capture. There's death. There's release. Um, there's these interesting characters, Herod Agrippa. There, we, see, we see James, the, the, the brother of Jesus, start to emerge. We see John Mark, who we know is going to be so important in the, in the advance of the gospel, and it's so easy to turn this into almost a fairy tale. You, you, got, you got all the elements. You've got the rise of the evil guy, Herod. You've got, the, you've got the outbreak of bad things, right? James gets killed. The church is persecuted. Our, 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 our favorite protagonist, Peter, is in prison. And there sits the essential conflict, right? Woe is us. What will we ever do? Our hero, Peter, is in, is, is in jail. Then you see the, the climactic high point of the story. He gets released, and the crowd cheers, and yay, yay, yay. And then, of course, as with every good story, the bad guy, Herod, gets his in the end. He dies. You know, it's very tempting to look at this and, 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 and simplify it into something that is, that is nothing more than God takes care of good people, and he punishes bad people. Right? There's the, there's the sermon, right? And we could have done something on that and, and all gotten to go home a lot earlier than we, than we will this morning. 
Um, but I, I felt compelled to, to look at this from a different angle. Um, and, I, and I've got these I've got these questions that would nag at me as I studied this out. And I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of share them with you, and, and you can you know hold me accountable for for at least attempting to answer them this morning. You know, my first question was, why is it that Peter was sleeping so soundly in the prison cell the night before he was to be taken out to die? You know, and he was sleeping soundly. A light shone. You know, typically heavenly lights are pretty intense, right? If you're asleep and I come into your room and turn the light on, there's a good chance you're going to wake up. This would have been an even brighter light. Didn't wake him up. The angel has to strike him to get him up. The, the word strike is the same word that Luke uses to describe when, when Peter chopped off the ear of the servant. And this is not a gentle tap. This is a strike. I imagine a kick, right? That's what it took to wake him up. He was sleeping so soundly. And I think we're tempted to think, well, he was just so faithful. He just knew that God was going to rescue him. That's why he was sleeping so soundly. Well, if, if I were in that position, I think I would be more like a kid on Christmas Eve. I'm not sleeping. Santa Claus is going to be here any minute. Right? I'm fired up. When, how, how, when is the morning going to be here? You, you don't sleep when you've got that kind of excitement. Or, or, or maybe you would be tempted to go to the other extreme and say, you know what? He, he was faithless. He had just given up. And he just figured, you know, why not sleep? Well, you, you know what it's like to try and sleep the night before something awful is going to happen. You know, if I were in that position, I'd be up languishing. Oh, no, I didn't get to say goodbye to my wife. I didn't get to say goodbye to my kids. I didn't get to settle that dispute with that brother that, that I had wronged. Um, you know, all, all these years trying to get this church started and, and you know, and James gets killed. Now I'm going to get killed. What, what, what's the use, right? That, I would have been languishing. But Peter is sleeping soundly. Why is that? You know, what was this church? In verse 5 and in verse 12, it says they were praying for Peter. What exactly were they praying about? What, were the, what was the content of their prayers? If they were praying for his release... Why were they so absolutely certain that it did not happen when it finally happened? They were more ready to believe that the, that the servant girl was insane or that it was an angel than right. to believe that Peter had been released. What were they praying for? Yeah, good point. What is the real point of this story? And then lastly, the one that really gets to me is what about James, brother of John? son of Zebedee. You know, if, we, if we're going to package this story up and say this is a great story about the, 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 the rise of good and the fall of evil, what about James? If, if, if you were John, his brother, and I tried to sell you that this is a great story with a happy ending, would you, would you be prone to buy that? For, for, for those of you that have seen the musical uh, uh, Upside Down, Right? Some of you have seen it many times. But there's this scene. It, it's, it's a musical based on the book of Acts. And, and, and there's this scene that depicts chapter 12. And people are running back and forth across the stage. And there's this loud, frantic music playing in the background. And you can hear them kind of talking over themselves. But, but you can discern that they're saying, oh, no, Herod is persecuting the church. Oh, no, Peter has been captured. And they're running back and forth. And then... The music starts to die down, and, and as the characters run back and forth, they, they start to leave the stage, and, uh, and you're left with one guy on the stage, and there's no music playing, and, and it's the guy who plays John 
John's left on the stage. And he's running back and forth. And he's yelling, where's James? Where's my brother? Wow. It's, it's gut-wrenching. Of course, because you're sitting in the audience having, having read the book. And you know where James is. James is dead. The beloved brother of John. Gone. What about James? You know, I see three things kind of running in parallel in this, in this, in this, in this chapter. You've got, you've got the course of human events, right? We all live that every day. You wake up, you do this, you do that. People are in, in, in the chapter. People are getting arrested. People are getting released. And then you also see the hand of God at work very powerfully, right? You've got, you've got angels interacting with, with, with the storyline. And then in the middle, you've got this... You've got this prayer. You've got, the, you've got the disciples praying. These three things are happening simultaneously. And it, you know, it, just, it just makes me think, why do we pray? You know, what do we pray for? Do, do you pray? Right? You know, the Bible's full of prayer. The Bible's full of praying people. The Bible is full of admonitions for us to pray. It's obviously something that's very important, but, but what exactly are we supposed to be doing about this prayer? What are we supposed to be expecting from our prayers? What were John's prayers when Peter was arrested? Or not Peter, rather, excuse me, James. When his brother James. You know, where, where, was, where was James's angel, right? Was there no prayer for something like that to happen for James? You know, I looked at a couple of different prayers in the Bible. Um, Starting with Jacob, the, the, the father of the 12 tribes. And, and in, in chapter 28 of Genesis, he's in Bethel and he, he has this vision. He, he sees this stairway to heaven. He, he has this encounter with God where God says, I'm going to be with you. And he kind of passes on the covenant to him. And then Jacob prays. And in verse 20 of chapter 28, he says, if. His prayer starts with an if. He says, if God will be with me. And will watch over me on this journey I am taking. And will give me food to eat and clothes to wear. So that I return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. <clears throat> and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give, of all that you give me I will give a tenth. It's a very conditional prayer. Right. I mean, this, is, this is an if-then statement. This is a contract. It's not a prayer. If you do this, then I will do that. Do you ever have prayers like that? Do you think that's what the disciples were praying when Peter was locked up? You know, as you go through the Old Testament, you see all kinds of prayers. In First Chronicles chapter 4, you meet, you meet Jabez. You don't hear about him much in church, but you used to hear about him all the time, all the time in pop culture. Remember the prayer of Jabez. And his prayer, it's in First Chronicles chapter 4. You can read it if you want. But it basically says, make me rich and make me comfortable. And make my life pain-free. That's essentially what it says. You can look it up for yourself. Is that the kind of prayer that the disciples were praying for Peter? You, you move on, you can get into the book of Psalms. Everybody loves to look at Psalms for prayers. There's some great prayers in Psalms. And half of them are attributed to David, a man after God's own heart. And, and there you see something different. You see sort of a shift, right? You don't see, the, you don't see David making contracts with God. You see him sharing his anguish, sharing his pain, sharing his suffering, sharing his anger, sharing his disappointment, sharing his fear, but also praising and, and being joyful. 
And he says things like, one thing I ask, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's something different there, right? That's different than give me food and shelter and, and, and watch over me and then you can be my God. That's different. But you know, lastly, we should always make sure that we close out any study on prayer with, with Jesus, right? You look in Luke chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, but you know, there's, this, there's, this, there's this scene where Jesus is praying and his, and his disciples come to him and say, teach us to pray. And that should, that should startle you. These are Jewish men, right? It, 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 all of them had some exposure to the Bible, that what we know of as the Old Testament. Some of them may have been far more familiar with it than any of us will ever be. They, they had read the prayers. They had been to the synagogue. They had been to the temple. They had prayed with their family. These were praying men. But there was something about Jesus' prayers that, that, that drew them in and said, well, we, we need to learn all over again what this prayer stuff is about. He says, teach us to pray. And Jesus does. And the first words out of his mouth in Luke chapter 11 are, Father. So not, you think about Jacob's prayer, well, if you do this, then you could be my father. No, Jesus starts with Father. Hallowed be your, your name. Not only are you my father, but you're so intensely pure and different and set apart. And then he finally gets around to asking for something in his prayer. And what does he say? Your kingdom come. That's what Jesus asks for in his prayers. Your kingdom come. In the parallel uh, prayer, so to speak, in, in Matthew, he says, thy will be done. Right? We'll hear him again in the garden say, not my will, but yours be done. It's a different kind of prayer. Amen. And he taught his disciples to pray like that. Is that how we pray? You know, you might challenge me and say, no, 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 Tim, this is the same Jesus that, that encourages us to seek and ask and knock and be persistent. Like, like the guy pounding on the door of his neighbor, insisting that he give him bread in the middle of the night. You got to keep it up till you get what you want. Keep asking God for your heart's desire until He gives it to you. But you know, in, in that in that same illustration, as Jesus is trying to bring it home, and He says, he "says you know, you guys, if your son asks you for a fish, you're not going to give him a snake, and if he if he asks you for an egg, you're not going to give him a, a, a scorpion." And, and and He says, "If you then, though you are evil," know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give you your stuff? How much more will He give you your pain-free life? It's not what it says. It says, how much more will He give you the Holy Spirit? Amen. That's the gift of God. That's what He has in store for you. Later in chapter 12, Jesus says, fear not. It's the Father's good gift to give you a new car? No. no. It's His good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's what you get. What is life in the kingdom? Is life in the kingdom pain-free? Free from loss? Free from suffering? Free from the ups and downs, the rising and falling of life? You know, Sometimes I find that the... The longer I'm a disciple, the more intensely I tend to feel pain. I used to be pretty good at <laughs> not feeling it at all. Um, but, you know, that the kingdom life is not free from loss. We don't get to avoid the death of James and the anguish that it causes. 
But we do get the joy of being in Christ. And because of that, we have hope in our suffering that we would not have otherwise had. And, and, and our, 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 our joy that is, that is certainly in equal portions to our suffering is multiplied because we get to share it with one another in the body of Christ. God himself did not shirk the pain of loss. He led his own son to the cross for our salvation. And, and Jesus obediently humbled himself to this gruesome death for the glory that was set before him. You know, God's kingdom, quite frankly, is a kingdom of loss. Luke 18, Peter cries out to Jesus, We have lost everything for you. We have left everything behind for you. Everything. Paul says in Philippians, I consider everything lost for the sake of Christ. In Romans chapter 8, he says, Paul, I consider our present sufferings not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Perhaps this is what was on Peter's mind as he laid in that prison cell, sleeping comfortably. Peter had given up everything for Jesus. He had run out of things to lose, except for one thing, and that was his life. But Peter would tell you that he had already lost that life. He gave that life up, and he now had a life in Christ. And there was nothing that Herod could do to change that. That's where his joy was. There was nothing to fear. You know, we talked and said, what, were the, what, were the, what, were, what was the church praying about? You know, there, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting passage on prayer that I've been puzzling about the entire time I've been a Christian. It's in, it's in Romans 8. In verse 26, Paul says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. That, that, that blows my mind. So I, I pray, but I don't know what to pray for. But somehow there's this Google Translate thing happening with the Holy Spirit. And by the time it gets to God, it's, it's in accordance with his will. I mean, that's amazing to me. Thank God that I don't get what I pray for a lot of times. Thank God for the Holy Spirit that has been freely given to me. In verse 28, he goes on to say, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And I think that that's what was on the mind of these disciples as they prayed. Because I don't think that faithful prayer means believing that you're going to get what you ask for. I think that faithful prayer means believing in the one to whom you pray. It means believing that God is good always and that his will is good for us and that nothing is going to stop that. Which brings me to what is the real point of this story? I think the real point of this story is not about good guys and bad guys. It's not about Peter not about James. The real point of this story is found in verse 24 where it says, and the word of God continued to spread and to flourish. There's your hero. There's your unstoppable character. You know, Herod rose to power and he fell. And the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Peter was captured and released. 
only to be captured again some decades later in, in Rome and, and killed in a much more gruesome way than this would have been. <laughs> but the word of God was unhampered, unhindered. It continued to spread and to flourish. What about you, Christian? Have you suffered loss? Do you realize that the days set before you will continue to have risings and fallings, gains and losses? But if you have, if you have believed and turned, as Brandon talked about yes, uh, last week when, when we studied out chapter 11, if you've, if you've repented, if you're a disciple of Jesus, the Word of God has sparked something within you. Amen. It has work to do. It's going to continue in its work. And nothing will stop it as long as we... Hold faithfully to Christ until the end. Amen. And that brings me to the most painful question that I, that I had. That was the question about James. We haven't really reconciled that yet. You, Eusebius, the Roman historian, writes about what happened to James in his final days. And he says that James was, was betrayed by a fellow disciple. Handed over to, to Herod, sold out. Um, not unlike the way Jesus was handed over, betrayed, and sold out by, by Judas. And, and it says that this man who betrayed James, we don't get his name, but it says that he was present at James's trial as he, as, he was, as he was giving his defense. And James was speaking so eloquently, giving his testimony, that, that, that his betrayer was moved to the point that he had to step forth in the midst of the trial and say, I too am a disciple of this Jesus. And Herod, being nothing if not consistent, said, okay, no problem. We'll kill you too. So the two men, James and his accuser, his betrayer, are being marched off to the executioner's block to have their heads cut off. But this, this betrayer is, is so convicted and he's begging James along the way, please, please forgive me. And James, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked upon him and said, Peace be with you. And he kissed him and he forgave him. And they died, reconciled in Christ. What about James? What about James? Come on. James lived a life and died a death that glorified God. What prayer could you possibly pray that would top that? I pray for you that you too will live and die to the glory of God. And I hope that you pray the same for me as God's word continues to spread and to flourish. To God be the glory. We have one more time.